0: Uh, well, good morning, everyone. <coughs> uh, how about we pray as we open our open God's Word this morning? <coughs> uh, Heavenly Father, Lord God, thanks for uh, the truth of those songs, Lord. That uh, everything is for Your glory, Lord. That we uh, have been saved by You, Lord. That it's not uh, of our doing, as uh, as Tony shared before, Lord. That um, yeah, that it's uh that it's only through Christ um, that he has raised uh, and that is the foundation of our faith, Lord. Um, we thank you that you have uh, revealed yourself through these scriptures and so we pray that uh, as we come to read those scriptures, Lord, that you would uh, help us to uh, remove our distractions, Lord, uh, let us let our selfishness not be a distraction, let those around us not be a distraction, Lord, but uh, we pray that we would focus our minds on you. Uh, so that we can see everything else in your light. Uh, We pray these things in Christ's name, uh, because uh, it is through him that we uh, have come before you. We pray this uh, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. I'm going to be preaching this morning on Romans chapter 11, from verse 33 uh, down to chapter 12, verse 3. So, uh, please open uh, your Bibles to Romans chapter 11 and I'll read from verse 33. <coughs> Romans eleven thirty-three. 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counsellor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. (coughs) As naturally self-centered people living in a self-centered world, it's easy to forget that we're not the most important things in life. As Christians, we often uh, focus on the act of simply living our lives rather than living our lives for God. And even in Christian activities uh, like praying or reading scripture, it's so easy to rely on ourselves, what we want, what we like, uh, what we should do, rather than on God, what he wants, what he is like, and what he's done for us. Uh, We act as though the Bible is primarily about us and that God exists for our sake, and forget that the Bible is first and foremost about God and that we exist for him. (coughs) But Solomon taught his son a different way in Proverbs three verses five and six, uh, where he said, "Trust in the Lord with all your heart; do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths." And Paul put it more succinctly in First in Corinthians ten thirty one: uh, "Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God." So, what does that mean, and how do we go about living for God's glory? Well, first we need to reframe our thinking. We need to see God as the centre of everything and then we'll be able to reshape our lives around him. Living for God's sake goes against everything our proud, selfish hearts want. So we must start by seeing our self-centredness for the lie that it is and seeing God as the true centre of everything if we're, to li- if we're to shape our lives and actions around him. As we look at this passage from Romans 11 and 12 today, Uh, We're going to study those two things uh, as we firstly see that God is glorious and why. And then we learn how to actively give him glory in our lives. And you can see that outline on the back sheets of the the handouts today. So firstly, let's look at uh, Romans chapter 11, 33 to 36, as we see that God is glorious. Let me read that again. Oh, the depth of the riches of, and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. <laughs> wow. What an amazing description of what God is like, right? Paul is overwhelmed, he's floored by the unmeasurable greatness of God. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways! Uh, Paul introduces to us in this verse three attributes of God, three things that God is. We call these uh, communicable attributes because these are things that God is like that we can also be like to a degree. God is... The, the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God there's some things that god, that God is like which we can 't be like at all. We call these incommunicable attributes, uh, things like his eternality and his omnipresence god isn 't bound by space or time, but we can only be at one place at one time. But these in verse thirty three here are communicable attributes. We can be rich, we can be wise, we can be smart. And not only we can be like this, but we often selfishly want to be like this, right? We want to be really rich, and we want to be really wise, and we want to be really smart. And we boast about it when we are. But Paul says, No one is rich, wise, or smart like God. God is rich, God is wise, and God is knowledgeable. And His riches and wisdom and knowledge go on and on and on. God is infinitely rich, He's completely wise and he is all-knowing. And when we're rich, wise or smart, it's only because God has given us that wisdom, wealth and knowledge. <laughs> now, just as a side note, if you're reading an NIV or a New American Standard and wondering uh, why richness is an attribute, uh, various translators have taken different ways of, uh, of translating this phrasing. The ESV, which I'm reading from, uh, reads, Riches and Wisdom and Knowledge Uh, And it says in the footnotes of the NIV and NASB, there's there's reason to understand it as either riches and wisdom and knowledge or riches of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, But I agree with the choice of the ESV translators uh, since, as we'll see, these three attributes are reiterated in the following verses. And so we're going to look one at a time at how God is rich, wise and knowledgeable. Firstly, God is infinitely rich. Now, this isn't often a way we think about God, is it? But it stands to reason that if God made everything and God rules everything, he also owns everything and is therefore wealthy beyond measure. God made everything so it all belongs to him. It's what what Tony read this morning in uh, Psalm 24. Uh, And Paul says later in verse 35 of our passage, who has given a gift for him that he might be repaid? In other words, who could give God anything that he doesn't already own? such that God would be in their debt? It's a rhetorical question, of course. No one could ever give God anything he doesn't already know, own. Uh, but just to make it abundantly clear, in the second half of Job 41.11, where this is quoted from, God says, Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. No one can ever own anything except under God's ownership. No one can ever give God anything that isn't already his. God owns everything. Secondly, we see in verse 33 of Romans 11 that God is infinitely wise. This passage comes at the end of Paul's description about God's eternal plan to save both Jews and Gentiles. Salvation started with the Jews, uh, but then God sovereignly planned that not all of them would be saved, which Paul explained in, in chapter 11, verses 7 and 8. And then he gives a reason in verse 11. Uh, he says, through there, that is, through the Jews' trespass, Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And then he goes on to say in verse 25, A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. In God's plan the Gentiles come to God after seeing the glories of grace demonstrated among the Jews. Then more Jews will come to God in faith in Christ after seeing the glories of of grace demonstrated among the Gentiles. No wonder Paul says how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways, or uh, as the NIV puts it a bit more clearly, how unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. God's plan is so much bigger, so much higher than human thought. And the Bible is absolutely clear on this subject. Who God is and what he thinks and does could not have been thought up by a person, no, no one is that wise to come up with it. And who God is and what he thinks and does cannot be entirely understood by people either. God is far beyond our comprehension and we will spend eternity learning the depths of who God is. Uh, in the second half of verse 34 he elaborates further, who has been God's counsellor? Who has God ever taken advice from? Who does God consult when he needs to make a decision? No one, of course. Because God is the source of all wisdom. Now, thirdly, God is infinitely knowledgeable, and just as Jesus is the ultimate source of all, just as God is the ultimate source of all wisdom and riches, riches, He is also the ultimate source of all knowledge. God knows everything, and to prove it, the Bible repeatedly talks about God knowing even the thoughts of every single person. Psalm one thirty nine: O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it all <clears throat> In John twenty-one seventeen, when uh, Jesus asked Peter if he loved him, Peter replied, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. God knows everything. Romans 11.34, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who could ever know all that God knows? No one. <clears throat> God is the ultimate source of all riches, all wisdom, all knowledge. Uh, which then brings us to uh, verse 36 of Romans chapter 11. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This verse uh, is the culmination of many of the gospel themes throughout the letter of Romans. Uh, And and I'm just going to go through these and and show how that's the case. Firstly, everything is from him. Uh, This talks about the origin of everything. Nothing can be traced back further than God. Atheists love to say, if God made everything, who made God? Uh, But there's no room for that in this verse, of course. God is the eternal, ultimate source of all. Nothing can be traced back further than him. Uh, now obviously this is absolutely true of creation and uh, and the Bible is 100% clear on that. Uh, Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. God is the source of all creation. But God has stressed throughout the book of Romans that it is also true of salvation, that the gospel... The grace, that grace is entirely from God. Uh, listen as I read Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Uh, it says, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, through all who believe. Uh, Romans 4, it says, uh, To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness just as david also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom god counts righteousness apart from works god is the source of the gracious gift of righteousness saving grace is entirely from god uh, secondly everything is entirely from uh, sorry everything is entirely through god or by god uh, this word is talking about the means by which all things exist, how everything exists. And of course, again, this is a hundred percent true of creation. Uh, John 1 3 says, All things were made through him, that is Christ, and without him was nothing made that was made. And it's also, of course, true that God keeps all creation going. Uh, he that is Christ, again, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's Hebrews 1 verse 3. But again, Romans uh, talks extensively about the gospel and salvation and grace, and Paul has spent 11 chapters talking about how our salvation comes through God, and that all we need, uh, and all that is needed for it, is done by God. Romans 3.24, We are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Then, chapter 5, verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and again, in Romans 10, verse 17, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Uh, it's just like the Reformers taught us, we just sang, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. But even in proclaiming that our sinful selves so often prevent us from fully compre- from fully uh, getting the the full implication of that final truth, salvation is for God's glory alone. Uh, and that's what Paul draws on in this final statement. Uh, everything is for God. <coughs> So what do we mean when things are for God's glory? What is God's glory? Uh, Well, it refers to his greatness and honour and fundamentally God's glory is part of who he is. Inherent within his goodness and majesty is the fact that he is glorious. Like we just read, God is infinitely amazing in who he is. He's infinitely rich, wise and knowledgeable and so many other things. He's holy and just, perfectly wrathful, loving and gracious, almighty sovereign. He is inherently great, and so he is inherently glorious, and he cannot be made more glorious. Yet God's glory can be communicated and shown. We call this glorifying God. Sometimes God does this by displaying his glory physically as brightness, clouds, or fire. And we'll see in the coming moments how God also glorifies himself by showing us what he's like through his actions, and how we too can and should glorify him in our deeds and words. And this is what it means when we talk about things glorifying God or being for His glory. All things exist to show the greatness of God. Uh, in the previous two, uh, as like the free, yeah. and like the previous two phrases, this too is true of creation. Psalm 19 tells us, "The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork." In Romans 1 verses 20 to 23, it's the glory of God shown in creation that's denied by sinners. His invisible attributes, Paul says, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him, but they, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Uh, and likewise, this too is something that Paul has been at pains to show is true of salvation. We often, think about, we often think that the gospel is all about us. God loved us and Christ died for us. And that's true, as, as John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have an everlasting life. But if that's all we know about the gospel, we miss its true purpose. Not only is salvation from God and through God, it is also for God, for his glory. Romans 3.26 tells us that God loved us and saved us and sent Christ to die as our substitute to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 8, again, talking about how God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, we see in those verses how God is showing, his, showing what he is like. He is working for his glory. Uh, Romans 9, verses 22 and 23, Paul discusses how God's sovereignty means that he chooses to save some and not others, giving the reason that, quote, God desiring to show his wrath and make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Uh, Later, talking about the purpose of our salvation, Paul says in Romans chapter 15 verse 8 uh, and onwards, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with this people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. Likewise, in chapter 1, verse 5, we have received apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. God saves us for his glory. Salvation is for him. It's not about us. We haven't accomplished anything of our salvation. We haven't done anything or been anything that would warrant God's love. Nothing can be attributed to us. We can't get any of the glory. All of creation and all of salvation is entirely from God, through God and for God. <coughs> and so in response to that, Paul says at the end of verse 36, to him be glory forever forever. Amen. Now, really in the context, that's kind of a funny thing to say. Paul's just spent 10 chapters and 35 and a half verses talking about how assured God's glory is. God's glorified in sinners, he's glorified in salvation, he's glorified in his sovereignty, and he's glorified in his saints. So why would Paul then feel the need to wish God glory? Because that's what amen means. May it be true, or I hope this happens. Paul's saying, may God get glory forever. I hope God gets glory forever. Um, Paul, did you not hear yourself? Uh, You just said God is going to get glory forever, no matter what. But here's the thing Paul saw God's glory in the gospel, and so he was passionate and amazed about God's glory. He made us for that reason. That's what God wants us to be too passionate and amazed about his glory. He made us for that reason, and he saved us for that reason. God is passionate about his glory, and he wants us to be too. So how do we go about doing that? Aside from walking around all the time saying, may God get all glory forever, uh, how do we actively live to glorify God? How do we show that he is the source of everything, that he is the means by which everything exists, and that he is the purpose for which everything exists? Well, that brings us to chapter 12. Because in these first three verses of chapter 12, Paul gives us three ways we can glorify God in our lives. Three aspects of our lives that we can shape around his sovereignty and supremacy. Uh, you'll see those also in your bulletins. Uh, the, three, the three ways are our actions, what we do with our body in verse 1, our aims, what we try to be and do in verse 2, and our appraisal, what we think, what we think when we think of ourselves in verse 3. And we're going to look at each of those in the remaining time. So let me read uh, again chapter 12, verses 1 to 3 of Romans. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect." For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. There's a distinct shift in these verses. In the previous verses, God Paul mentioned God ten times, and the only other person mentioned, anyone who could best God in wisdom or knowledge or have wealth, does not exist but here at the start of Romans 12 Paul shifts to address the Roman believers referring to them 10 times in these 12 verses in these three verses sorry Uh, yet Paul does not want his readers to lose sight of God see Paul is not merely telling his believers how to live their lives his readers how to live their lives he's teaching them how to live their lives from God through God and for God Notice how he picks up the language of verses th- of verse thirty six in chapter eleven in the uh, in the opening verses of chapter twelve. The measure of faith that God has assigned—that's all things are for- from God by the mercies of God by the grace given to me—that's all things are through God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. All things are for Him. This. These points are a direct flow on from the previous one. God is glorious, the sovereign source of all, so let's give him glory with our lives, acknowledging him as the sovereign source in the way we act, what we aim for, and how we view ourselves. <coughs> so let's look at each of those in turn. Uh, firstly, give God glory in your actions, verse 1. Paul's first exhortation is spelled out in verse 1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. But he doesn't dive straight into this. Instead, he begins by setting the tone of this command. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Each of these words adds emotional weight to the command that follows. Appeal is a very different tone than command or demand. It implies care for the reader, as well as putting Paul on the same level as them. It says, come and let me help you live how I live, the right way, rather than simply, this is what you're supposed to do. And Paul then calls the Roman believers brothers. This too shows his love and care for them. And finally, Paul's use of the word therefore and the phrase by the mercies of God shows how this command is in direct response to the God-glorifying gospel of grace that Paul has previously described. This is not a heartless command. It is a loving exhortation in response to God's grace for us. So what does it say? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul uses the image of a sacrifice to describe how we're to live for God's sake. And the Jewish members of the Roman congregation would have been deeply familiar with uh, the sacrifices, with the concept. In the Old Testament, sacrifices were an integral part of the uh, way Jews related to and worshipped God. They pointed to the ultimate sacrifice which we now look back on, that of Jesus, whose death covered our sins and brought us to God once and for all. But if you ask those Jews uh, what three words they would associate with sacrifices, they would say, devoted, unblemished, and dead, or killed. Paul picks up these concepts and applies them to our lives as Christians. Like Old Testament sacrifices, where to be fully devoted to God, uh, Paul uses the phrase, present your bodies to God. Uh, We should be unblemished. As Paul says, we are to be holy and acceptable sacrifices. Unlike those sacrifices, however, we're supposed to glorify God by living for him. Uh, As Paul says, we're to be living sacrifices, not dead ones. Now, now some of us and many of the Roman Christians uh, may one day be called to literally be martyrs for God. Uh, And it is often painful to live as Christians. We're called to figuratively die to our selfish, sinful desires. But until such a time as we are called to die, we are called to live for God. Uh, We are called to constantly, uh, consistently devote ourselves to God to present our bodies to Him. Paul has previously shown that we cannot give God anything that He does not already own, but we can still arrogantly act as though God has no ownership over us, and we naturally do. That's what our sinful flesh does. But to show that God is the ultimate owner of our lives, we must actively devote ourselves to God by serving him in our actions, that is, by living lives of worship. <laughs> we must do what he desires. And as sacrifices, we are to be clean, acceptable, holy. Uh, we must do. Uh, there are two aspects to this, sorry. Uh, firstly, only God can make us truly holy and acceptable to him. Naturally, we are sinful people not living for him And in this state, we're the opposite of what Paul calls for. We're unholy and we're disgusting to God. As we discussed before, God is the only source of righteousness. It is only when we confess our sins to God, trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus to cleanse us, that then we will be acceptable before him. And if you've not done that yet, I plead with you to drop everything and do that right now. But secondly, if you have been cleansed by Jesus... Holy and acceptable worship means doing what God wants in every circumstance. And of course we'll never be perfect in doing this, and so we must continue to, sacrifice, uh, to confess our sins to God and trust him to cleanse us. But this is what we are created and what we were saved to do. Uh, Paul picks up similar words in verse 2 to describe the will of God, how God would have us act, and we'll consider that in a moment. But in this verse we are called to live in accordance with that will that we're about to learn about. So that brings us to verse 2. Give God glory in your aims. Having dealt with how we act in verse 1, Paul then moves on to what we aim for in verse 2. He presents two contrasting aims that we can have. Either we can aim to be like the world, or we can consider how to do God's will. And in this contrast, he tells us not to be like the world, but to do the second, to live in accordance with God's will. Uh, Let's look at what he says... What, what he means by the negative command first. Do not be conformed to this world. The word conformed means to be patterned after or to copy. We've all seen this whenever someone wears something cool or some, whenever someone cool wears something strange, everyone wants to wear that too. In this case, however, it describes copying, copying the world's way of life. So what's the world re- referring to? Well, it's a euphemism for the sinful state of humanity. All people naturally want to live for themselves, and until we enter God's perfectly remade world, this will be the prevailing aim of everyone who has not been saved. But we must not be like this. On the contrary, we're called to be transformed, such that we live to do God's will. Being transformed is actually a lot harder than just not being being conformed. As Christians, we're not called to simply resist peer pressure that makes us want to be sinful. We actually have to change. See, resisting being conformed is resisting temptation to be like an external mould. But the command is to be, tra- but the command to be transformed shows that we ourselves are naturally bent towards sinfulness. Some people think they'll be fine if they simply resist external corrupting influences. You know, the extreme of this would be to go and spend your days in a monastery. But these people forget about their internal corruption. We must be transformed by the, from the inside if we are to do God's will. We must have our minds rem- renewed. Uh, the word renewed means renovated, renovated from the ground up. Uh, to illustrate, anyone that walks into our house, into our current house, immediately comments on the wonkiness of the floor. Uh, now, it's, it is a great house. It's really excellent, except, especially for the price we're paying. Uh, and we're really grateful for it. But it is an old house with old stumps, and to make the floor and wall straight would require a new foundation, as well as a host of other minor renovation jobs to fix peeling wallpaper, stained lino and cracked walls, uh, not to mention getting rid of several wasps and rat nests. And that's the idea Paul uses for mind renewal, complete renovation of our inner selves, including a new foundation for our thinking and our, way, our aims in life. This new foundation is what Paul has taught us through chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. See, as we learn who God is and what he desires through his word, uh, as we learn about these things through his word, through the Bible, and as the Holy Spirit applies what we are learning, our minds will be renewed, changed, renovated in accordance with his will. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, fully equipped for every good work. It is the Word of God that renews our minds such that we are ready to do God's good work. Once our minds are renewed by the truth of God's Word, we will be able to learn how God would have us live by studying His Scriptures and then discern and choose God's will in various circumstances. We will be able to do what is good and acceptable and perfect. Finally, in verse 3, Paul turns to the topic of our self-appraisal, how we think about ourselves in light of the fact that everything comes from God and is for him. As that brings us to point number C, bring, uh, give glory to God in your appraisal. But firstly, Paul wants to stress that he's no exception to this command. Not even Paul, one of the greatest missionary evangelists who ever lived, uh, could, one of the apostles could say that he had achieved anything apart from God's grace. When Paul gives us a command not to think of ourselves more highly than is fitting of those who have been given faith by God's grace, he says it by the grace given him. As he writes, Paul exemplifies the, ad- the attitude that he is advocating, preaching as a recipient of God's grace. <coughs> so how do we think about ourselves after we've learned that God is the sovereign source of all our abilities and all our deficits our successes and our failures. Well, Paul says to each individual person in the Roman Church, and by extension to each of us, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So how highly ought we to think? Well, the word ought in this context means what is required by the facts of the circumstances, which is spelled out at the end of the verse. God has assigned to you your faith. Now, don't read this verse as think of yourself in accordance with the faith that God has given you. It would be better read as think of yourself in accordance with the fact that God has given you faith. See, our identity is not to be in the faith that God has given us, but in God who gives us faith. Like Paul, we are to see ourselves as recipients of God's gracious gift of faith. Uh, This is how we are to think with sober or sound or sensible judgment different ways of translating that word. In light of the gospel, that everything including saving faith comes from God, how we see ourselves should be defined by Him, should focus on Him. All that we do, like Paul, is done by the grace given to us. Because as we've seen this morning, saving faith, as well as everything else that exists or has ever existed, comes only from God and through Him and exists for His glory alone. Isn't God awesome? He's the ultimate in wealth, in knowledge and in wisdom, yet he allows us to share in those in part. So, won't you give him the glory he deserves as the sovereign source, sustainer and purpose of your life by transforming your mind to aim for his will, by living in accordance with that will and acknowledging him as your source of life and faith. By the power of God's word and the Holy Spirit, Consciously live your life to the glory of God because as Philippians 2.13 says, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Because God has saved us for his glory and works in us for his glory, Paul urges us to a act, aim and assess ourselves for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we, uh, we want to praise you uh, for the fact that you are great, Lord, that... Uh, that we don't need to be uh, good or uh, that we don't need to save ourselves, Lord, but that uh, that we can just marvel at your amazing greatness, your amazing glory, uh, and that we can sing about that and meditate on that, Lord, and read it in your word. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would apply that truth to our lives, Lord, and that, that it would reframe our minds so that you would be the center of everything that we do, uh, of all that we think and all that we... And the way that we act and the way that we think about ourselves, Lord, uh we pray that it would all revolve around you and not around ourselves. Uh we pray that your that your grace would overcome our sinful self centeredness uh, as we uh and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.